Today's episode is episode 199 of Unconventional Humans Podcast. Today's episode is called A Room of One's Own. So today's episode is I'm just going to talk around some points that I want to talk about from Virginia Woolf's essay, A Room of One's Own. I think the purpose of the essay was to describe women and fiction, write an essay about women and fiction. And she explores some fascinating points of view. I liked actually how she started uh, this essay. She says something along the lines of that everything I say here is a fabrication and hopefully there's some truth that's going to be of use to you in this fabrication. So for me that highlighted that she was self-aware enough to realize that she's explaining explaining things, explaining her points of views is subjective. It's her points of views that they're She's describing something that it isn't an objective truth, but she's doing her best to describe how she sees reality in the hope that it can help other people. That's my interpretation of it anyway. So Virginia Woolf, she lived between the years 1882 and 1941. She was an English writer, considered one of the most important modernist 20th century authors and a pioneer in the use of stream of consciousness as a narrative device. So I'm just going to talk around five main points that I picked out in this book. There's actually quite a lot in this book. I was very impressed with her awareness and the way she can describe things. So I'm going to start off. The first point is write for yourself. That was one of the main things I took away from this book was that Virginia was... Pointing to the importance of writing for yourself, so I'm going to read a, I'm going to read some quotes from this book that I found were very useful. And in terms of write for yourself, she had a great quote in this book towards the end of the book, towards the end of the essay. She said, "This great book, this worthless book, the same book is called by both names. Praise and blame alike mean nothing. No." Delightful as the pastime of measuring may be, it is the most futile of all occupations, and to submit to the decrees of the measures, the most servile of attitudes. So long as you write what you wish to write, that is all that matters. And whether it matters for ages or only for hours, nobody can say. So as a writer, that gave me great heart that that was her line of thinking. I resonate a lot with what she's saying there. I think as a, as a creator, that is something that is in your mind. There's a desire to want to be praised, but in the same token, not to be criticized. You can't have one without the other. But ultimately, neither of them matter, as long as you're being true to yourself and you're writing for yourself. I feel like that's where the jewels are, I guess, to writing. That's where the the treasure is. To writing that's where there's actual depth and substance to yourself as a person that isn't dependent on the outside world so i found it very heartening that that was her line of reasoning when it came to writing that was 
kind of what shone through in this book was writing as a medium for discovering your own personal truths and expressing how you honestly see the world. Next point that I found interesting in this book, she talks about the androgynous brain. So androgynous, I had to look it up, it's indeterminate sex. So it's partly male, partly female. And she was talking about in terms of, of people and your brain, that there's a female part and a male part. And I'm just going to read some quotes from the book. She said, it is fatal for anyone who write to think of their sex. It is fatal to be a man or woman, pure and simple. One must be man, womanly, or woman, manly. And in the final one, this was actually a very good one. Some collaboration has to take place in the mind between the woman and the man before the art of creation can be accomplished. So I I found those very interesting points because Virginia Woolf is somebody who... She's somebody who has made an impact in regards to feminism. And what I got from her book was she was about equality between the sexes. And just the quotes I've read there, when it came to writing, she actually, she realized that sex, distinguishing yourself in terms of your sex can actually get it in the way of writing. It's making distinctions in your mind. It's compart- making compartments in your mind that isn't helping the creative process. It's actually stifling the creative process. I think she said somewhere along the book, along the essay too, that, that it's the sign of a, a developed mind, a mature mind, when all these like distinctions break down. I think she said it in terms of as you get older, as you mature, you tend to not take one side or the other. You'll notice that in mature people, that they've more of an ability to understand that there's merits to both sides of an argument, and it's your job to try and distill both sides and come to some sort of some sort of solution, some sort of answer, some sort of awareness around what's going on, even though it's complex. So she mentioned in the book, she, she mentioned some writers that she felt had an androgynous brain, that they had access to both the female and the male part of the brain, or just even in terms of male-female parts of yourself, your, not even necessarily the brain. I guess it's the thought patterns. When I read it related to my own life, when I write, there's certain times where I feel like that's a bit too feminine, especially when I mention... Things like being sensitive, connecting to yourself. There's certain things that I say that that I feel I need to say, but there's a part of me that feels like that's too feminine, don't express that. But as best as I can, I override that because I feel it does an injustice to yourself when you're blocking off sides of yourself so she said shakespeare she felt had an androgynous had an androgynous nature and she talked about the state of mind of shakespeare when he wrote his work she focused in on the state of mind 
Which again, I I, I felt like. That was a pretty deep realization when it comes to the creative process that she talked about the state of mind the person's in and that connects to the title of this essay a room of one's own so so she felt like it was important for a writer a creative person to have a room of their own so that they're not distracted because in this context she's talking about women in fiction she's talking about women a lot of women wouldn't necessarily have had the luxury of having a room of their own at that time and if they were going to write they would possibly have to do it in a a room where other people are and there's constant distractions and interruptions and it's not it's conducive for creative work for self-expression for introspection so that Twice the book there, a room of one's own. Like when I look at a room of one's own, it also for me represents a metaphor that it's your own mind. So it's removing yourself from other minds that might be distracting you or filling your head with ideas that aren't your own. And it's the process of developing your own mind in your own way. That's another way I look at it, a room of one's own that's what the process of writing can give you gives you an outlet an opportunity to develop your own mind in the face of a society that can surround you with too many minds with too many other ideas like it can just lead you to a state of confusion which leads me to my next point that I want to talk about she another core element of this essay was don't get distracted by others opinions and arguments and she had some great articulations on this one so as you said as people mature they cease to believe in sides or in headmasters or in highly ornamental paths so yeah that i think i think that was in relation to oxbridge i think she referred to the fact that they love to class people and categorize them in these institutions so I think that's the reference to the headmaster there. But on to the next quote here. He's protesting. So she, she's describing a male writer she was reading. I can't remember his name now. But she said, he's protesting against the equality of the other sex by asserting his own superiority. He is therefore impeded and inhibited and self-conscious. So those remarks at the end I found were very insightful for by her because she's she's highlighting a negative trait of someone the fact that this guy is he's protesting against the idea of women being equal by asserting his own illusionary sense of superiority so she's highlighting something that isn't a nice character trait in someone but she's highlighting the negatives in terms of he's doing himself a disservice by having this attitude which i found that is really important because that's how people change when you highlighted a bad behavior in someone and you show how it's actually 
not benefiting them. It gives him a reason to not have the attitude. So she's implying here that if he didn't have this attitude, he would actually be a better writer because he'd be less self-conscious. He'd be less inhibited and less impeded. So I thought it was very clever the way she did that. And in the last part here, it's quite a long uh, one. So I'm, I'm going to read it out because I just, I, I just found it very impactful to be honest so she said one has only to skim the old forgotten novels and listen to the tone of voice in which they were written to divine that the writer was merely was meeting criticism she was saying this way this by way of aggression or that by way of conciliation she was admitting that she was only a woman or protesting that she was as good as a man she met that criticism as her temperament dictated with docility and diffidence or with anger and emphasis it does not matter which it was. She was thinking of something other than the thing itself. She had altered her values in difference to the opinion of others. So she's articulated something there that I've been grappling with in my own way for quite a while. It's this struggle as a creator, as a writer, as an artist, that you're goal is to self-express and do your work and you've got the problem of your mind fixating on things that are other than the work you're here to do and that can be in the form of the, what's going on in the culture around you in that day and era so here is the example of she was living through a period where women were discouraged from pursuing from having an education for, for being a writer and it affected their work because according to their temperament they either tried to meet that criticism or they could also have a sense of self-deprecation that uh, I'm only a woman so her point here is that both of these temperaments are just getting the artist, the person, away from their work. It's getting them further away. It's distracting them from the actual work they're to do. It's impacting their writing. It'll tie back to the state of mind again. Because if you're being criticized and you're... Like the natural thing as a human being, if somebody criticizes you, it doesn't feel good. And there's... An impulse to react to that and in, for me personally it never feels good and you can carry that same impulse into your work so when you're writing you'll actually feel it if something's been bothering you if it's on your mind there can naturally be an impulse to try and react to that so pay attention to that that's what I try and pay attention to whenever I create something I just ask myself, or I'm, I'm just trying to be aware of, does this feel like I'm reacting to something? Does it feel triggering? Or does this feel like I'm taking the time to work through stuff? And there's a sense of calmness underneath it, even though as you're expressing something, as you're working through something, it can feel difficult, it can feel laborious. But there's a certain level of calmness to it too, where you don't feel like you're trying to escape the discomfort. That's the that's what I kind of pay attention to there, and that's how this this paragraph 
uh, resonated with me because she described it very well. I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd never be able to describe it this way. And when she described it this way, that makes sense of some of my process, to some of the feelings I've been grappling with. Like the beauty of reading something like this is that now I've got words for that process. Up until reading this paragraph in this essay, I only had like vague inclinations of this feeling over the last few years. I've always felt like there's certain pulls that could pull me away from the work I'm here to do. And my goal, the battle, the struggle, is to notice when that's happening to me. Because I'm not immune to it, even moving forward. That can still happen to me. It's a constant battle that these forces can pull you away. They can pull your mind away from like, really expressing the thing you're here to express. And so that was very well summed up. That was the first time that I'd read something that described that feeling really well. So this leads it on to the importance of the state of mind that the author is writing in. So as I've as I mentioned, she's referred to Shakespeare. She said Shakespeare's mind, she felt, was androgynous. Then she talked about Samuel Coleridge. So he was an English poet, philosopher, and theologian. Not somebody I've been familiar with before reading this. So she said, again, another insightful thing here. She said, when one takes an idea from Coleridge into the mind, it explodes and gives birth to all kinds of other ideas. And that is the only sort of writing of which one can say it is the secret of perpetual life. Again, I'd never heard something expressed like that. And she was talking about the distinction between good writing, great writing, and, and just mediocre kind of bad bad writing. Mediocre writing that doesn't leave an impression on the mind. And she talks about it in terms of you're not even deciding as the individual whether this is going to impact your mind. It's like there's something there in your mind whether it's going to be impacted or not. And she said that a writer like Coleridge, the way he wrote, it actually triggered ideas in her mind and so that of course would be the secret to perpetual life because it's you're putting one idea out there and it because it has had an impact on the reader's mind it's generating different thoughts so it's like giving birth to other ideas so that was that was interesting how she she described that again i guess it, it ties back to the state of mind that the writer was writing in that's what i enjoyed about this book she placed a good emphasis on the state of mind even reading this she really great writer so she had the technique of writing down that's what i would find lacking in myself and it's not even something that i'm drawn to want to improve i'm more drawn to the self-expression and state of mind part because i know that that is actually what will change my life day to day because it's feelings there i can work on other things with techniques and stuff but they don't affect my state of mind as much and that's also why i write because i want to i want to gain clarity of mind and in the process i want to share that with the reader so it's the state of mind transmitting the state of mind is the most important thing for me it's not something i have full control over but that's what i want to do i want to 
infect, I don't think that's a great word, but I want to like transmit the state of mind I'm in to the reader so that it will benefit their life in some way. So it's not necessarily, I don't, I'm not really focused on impressing a reader with my words. I'm more focused on how am I feeling while I'm writing this? What am I discovering? And hoping that that would be similar for the, the reader of a potential book. And the last point I want to talk about relates back to a room of your own. So another way of looking at a room of your own is when you work on, when you've got your own space, when you work on your own mind, natural self-confidence comes about from that. You're not creating a self-image that is feeding a false sense of confidence from the outside world. You're actually working, you're going through the hard work of knowing yourself, developing your mind, going through the growing pains of that, and developing real self-confidence. And I'll tell you this, start of the book, she was talking about how she read a lot of books written by men, and how she noticed that at that time, there was an anger to them, even though they had the power. And she wondered why that was, which is an interesting question. Like why, it's an interesting question for anybody to ask. And that's something I ask myself today. If people are in positions of power, then why are they unhappy? Do they not have what they want? It's a good question to contemplate. So this is something I've taken from the book here. She said, I thought it absurd that a man with all this power should be so angry. Life for both sexes is arduous, difficult, and a perpetual struggle. It calls for gigantic courage and strength. More than anything, perhaps, creatures of illusion as we are, it calls for confidence in oneself. Without self-confidence, we are babes in a cradle. And how do we generate this imponderable quality, which is so invaluable, so quickly? By thinking that other people are inferior to us, to oneself. So that's insightful because that is something that easily happens. It's the easiest form of self-confidence comes from knocking other people down. It's a pity that that's the easiest form of self-confidence, but it's just that that is, that is part of life and you don't know any better. So that's an interesting thing to, to, to think about when you're looking at somebody who has the trappings of success, who's in a powerful position, yet they're still angry, it's interesting to just notice that. Because perhaps they've bought into an illusion. Because part of this paradigm here is that if your confidence comes from feeling superior to other people, which is illusionary, because you're... I guess my belief would be that people are equal. We have different character traits, we have different talents, but they're all judgment calls. Like, I could think that somebody who's got a higher IQ than somebody else is more valuable because they have a higher IQ, but I'm overlooking what that other person has that the other person doesn't have. It's all judgment calls on my half, on my behalf, which is the illusion that I'm creating in my mind. 
of superiority. So if I value IQ, because I might have a high IQ, then I'm going to look down on other people because of that. And it's arbitrary. I've picked that out of the air. I could have easily used a different parameter where I judge that I judge people according to their height. I place value on them according to their height. So because all this stuff isn't grounded in reality, it's illusionary, that's where the anger comes from. Because deep down you know it's illusionary. But because you've latched onto something that's given you an inflated sense of self-importance and self-confidence, you want to hold on to that because you don't know any different. You, you you don't have confidence otherwise. So any threat to that then is going to provoke anger. So in this context here, you've men writing against equality, like women being equal, because they feel threatened by that. They feel threatened. Their self-confidence is threatened if it's built around the illusion of superiority of the sexes. So that was a another thing in this book. So what I liked about this essay on the Virginia Woolf is that you get the sense of a woman who is really describing equality of sexes because she said at one stage that, and I think I've already mentioned it, that as a writer sex shouldn't even come into the equation, that the mark of an evolved mind is when these distinctions start to evaporate and then you've access to more parts of your mind. They're not so compartmentalized off. So for me, Virginia Woolf is the, she, I, I'd say she's like the embodiment of equality of sexes. And uh, I thought it was just refreshing because she's looking into, she's not necessarily even distinguishing between male and female. That's my impression anyway. She's looking deeper. She's going more into the mind and that's where she's talking about an androgynous mind and yeah I, I just really enjoyed this essay I thought it was very well articulated and there was a lot of honesty to it and a lot of I think that's where you get genuine insight then there's I've read some stuff in this book that I wouldn't get that from the common everyday person who's thinking like everybody else so that's what that's why I like this. It's like somebody who is expressing how they see things, going deeper into things, and they're not afraid to do that. And uh, yeah, that's the book today. They're the main points I wanted to talk about. If you enjoyed today's podcast, leave a rating and a review. And that's it. So thanks again for listening, and I will speak to you on the next episode.